Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello there and welcome to the Political Party Podcast. I'm trying to start doing these introductions differently because sometimes I listen back to them. And I start every episode by going, hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast. And I just think... It's annoying to just say the same thing every time, isn't it? So what should I say? Hello, podcasters. Hello, political partiers. <laughs> Not <laughs> welcome anyway. Um, welcome to the show. And this is a real trick. Firstly, um, I'm doing some very special London dates. Two nights at the South Bank Centre of my now fully updated, with all the madness of the last few weeks in there, uh, Brexit through the gift shop. And I'm doing two Christmas specials of the political party on the 19th and 20th of December at the Leicester Square Theatre. You can get tickets for all those through my website, mattford.com slash live. Today's episode features Kevin Haig, a man who, if you are active on Twitter and interested in modern politics, particularly the politics of the union, you will have come across. Um, He set up, well, we discussed whether it's a think tank or not, called These Islands, which is um, predicated on the principle that there is more that unites the people of the United Kingdom uh, than divides us. Uh, So, as you would guess, in the the heat of the Scottish uh, independence debate, he is is on the uh, anti-independence side. He is brilliant. He's exceptionally bright, thoroughly researched, uh, and above all else, and this is what's always great, when you talk to people on any side of any divide, and I would say uh, the same about John Swinney, absolutely reasonable, and uh, that is deeply refreshing these days especially. Um, Of course, it always has been, but at the moment, I'm so grateful for calm, rational voices, regardless of what their uh, position is. Um, Now... uh, with these interviews, particularly when it's someone that I agree with, I always try and check myself and it not just be a, an interview where I'm asking him how right he is. So I do challenge uh, Kevin um, on uh, on the work that he does and on, on, on his position. Um, and I suppose it's just something that I reflect on a little bit at the moment is I obviously have my own politics and I know what they are and... Um, I think we all just have to slightly, and this comes out in the interview actually, we all just have to slightly reassess the way we think about people that we disagree with and the way that we think about the um, the viewpoints that other people ha- have and the way that we judge the other side of the debate as well. And I know that even though I try to be as reasonable as possible, I believe myself to be a reasonable person then, who doesn't, um, I am sometimes in danger of uh, mischaracterising the other side of the argument. Now, the as we explore in the interview, there are reasons to be cynical about uh, your opponents sometimes, but you also have to apply the same rules, I think, to your own side. So uh, I'm always aware, and maybe it's because I've got friends who voted for Scottish independence. I never want to sound like I just take it as a given that it's a bad idea or that it's wrong, because obviously there's a case for it, and actually I can fully understand why people support it. So um, not that you're going to be offended by anything you hear, but I'm just always aware... um, that there's another side, and that even if Kevin and I agree on a lot of things, um, 
there is another side to things. So there you go. Uh, Kevin's brilliant. And um, in the... I mean, I'm going to rehearse a, a, a conversation that we have during this interview. In the blurb of this show, which whatever provider you're listening on, whether it's SoundCloud or iTunes, you'll be able to get in touch. I always put the work that people do in there so that you can easily link to it. In that spirit, I should also say that one of the best guests I've had on here was Professor Arnand Menon, who is involved and runs the UK in a Changing uh, Europe think tank um, linked to King's College London. I went to a, an event that they put on the other night and it was absolutely amazing. You've got to sign up to their mailing list and it's non-partisan. It's, the title might make you think that it was um, anti-Brexit, but it's non-partisan. It is um, intellectual and it's academic and it was him... Uh, ben Page from Ipsos Mori and various other people. I mean, it was like basically getting to go to a really good university for free. It was amazing. And there are all these events going on, uh, and I'm sure there are loads of other events that I'm not aware of. It's, it's a really good night out to go to university and hear experts talk about what's going on with British public opinion, what's the latest on Brexit, and what a time to be immersing yourself in this stuff. So I will try and get on more academics that are doing these things. Um because it was just, I felt like I'd had a night out of the theatre. It was free, and it was better than a night out of the theatre. So uh, get involved with what, you know, read what Kevin's doing, read what Arnand and so many others are doing, because there's a whole load of academic work out there that that is for free, that will give you amazing amounts of information to help you greater understand uh, the world and the politics in which we live. So there you go. That's all the sales pitch over. Enjoy, Kevin Hay. <laughs> Delighted to be joined uh, from these islands uh, by Kevin Hay. Kevin, welcome to the show. Good to see you. Uh, good to see you too. Uh, so, these islands is a is an organisation that you chair. Mm-hmm. I, it, I mean, I think it's a charity as well. But is it is it a charity and is it a it, think tank? What? How would so you describe it's, it? It's not a charity. It's a not for profit organisation. Um, the reason why it's not a charity is because we get involved in political debates, and charities have you know very significant constraints around what they can do. So yeah. we didn't want to be. Uh, constrained. Uh, Whether it's a think tank or a forum is something we debate ourselves quite a lot, if I'm honest. Um, We like to think of ourselves more as a forum than a think tank. We are a way of facilitating, enabling a good quality debate. Um, And it's for people of all political persuasions. Yes. Um, But it's, but you know, we, uh, we have a particular point of view. Um, One of our advisory council members has a kind of good way of putting it where he says, you know, the, uh, there are no oh, Jesus. There are no bad ideas. No. no, there are no there are no sound bites that you can't remember. Uh, <laughs> well, I suppose maybe it will come back to you. It will come back to you. That's terrible. God, this is completely blank. Uh, but basically, you know, you you have to take a stance to have a point of view. Yes. Uh, you can't. There, I, I've remembered it. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> there is no view from nowhere. There are only points of view. Oh, excellent. Okay. So it's God, actually, that's good. it was worth remembering, wasn't it? I should have I should have had that off the cuff. There is no view from nowhere. There are only points of view. So we are clear. You know, you, you have to stand somewhere to view something. So where we stand is in a position where we have a, a declared view, an unabashed view that more unites than divides the people of the United Kingdom. Yes. Uh, and so whilst we're open to all political persuasions, there are certain for example, Scottish nationalists um, who don't seem to want to kind of join in the conversation with us. Uh, having said that, because we are a forum, because what we're trying to do is create good quality, well-informed debate, 
Uh, we do have some conversations with what I would consider to be some of the more rational uh, nationalist voices. Uh, and actually, we've got a couple of them who are writing pieces for us from the nationalist perspective Excellent. to try and, you know, uh, it's actually a bit like this podcast. It's one of the things I like about your podcast, oh, I have to you. say. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you get on people from all sorts of different views and you give them room to talk and discuss and it's yes. not combative and it's a chance to kind of elaborate ideas. And to a certain extent, that's what These Islands is trying to do as well. Um, so to give people with different views, including people with you know, pro-independence uh, views, a chance to make their case in a, if you like, a safe forum. <laughs> a safe uh, space. <laughs> maybe you know, somewhere that's not like Twitter, where you're not immediately going to get piled on yes. uh, if you say anything that you know, people disagree with. Um, so that's part of what we're trying to do, is kind of create that forum to enable good quality debate around the issues that are not just about Scottish independence, but about the United Kingdom as a whole. You know, what is it that binds us together? Well, I suppose, you know, um, can can understand why Scottish nationalists might be, suspicious might not be the right word, but not immediately mm. um, open to, to, to engaging with a with an organisation that I suppose is, is expressly pro-unionist. Absolutely. Um, and that's and, and, you know, one of the reasons why we exist is because... The nationalist campaign has been going on for decades and will continue to go on for decades and yeah. doesn't only exist when there's a referendum. Uh, and if you like, with a referendum, you could argue, I suppose, that the unionists won the war. Uh, what these islands is about is about making sure we win the peace, uh, that these issues don't go away just because there isn't a referendum coming up in 18 months, although, you know, maybe there is. Um, oh, but that's but so that's part of the point is, yes, you know, the, the, the yes movement. I'm always deeply suspicious of anything that calls itself a movement, by the way. Really? <laughs> yes. Well, I think, you know, movements, you know, they, they, a lot of movements end up being, you know, quite. Um, uh, well, how can I, how can I put this? Uh, radical, um, lacking in reason, uh, very heavily emotional driven, fact denying. You know, movements I'm kind of suspicious of. I see. I, um, I, I get where you're coming from. I, I suppose because I have a history in the Labour movement, I, it, yes. it, the word wasn't ever that toxic to me. But yes, well, it's maybe what movements have become. I suppose I can't think yeah. of many movements at the moment that I find myself warming towards. That's, that's part of the. No, um, I, I, I suppose. Um, I mean, what's interesting about what you're doing is, um, I suppose you're putting the other side uh, in a way that, uh, there, and there are parallels with with Europe here, of course, uh, massively, where it's always been the loudest voices in in both those debates. Yes. So whether you think of the Eurosceptics or, or the Scottish Nationalists, that have done, that have been constantly been banging that drum, exactly. and, and the opposite side was always a, a sort of reaction to it. Kind, yes. Well, let's just not do it, rather than an impassioned movement or you know organization <laughs> yeah. in itself where the emotional case for the union really was never made absolutely right. at all during that referendum and really at all before it exactly and 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 i think you can defend the failure to make the emotional case during the referendum um, yeah. you know people talk about the kind of the stumbling inarticulacy of those it's, of us who were trying to defend the union yeah. because it was just there it's like being asked to defend the ground beneath your feet you know you, you look down oh yeah. yes well there's the ground do, do i need to describe why that's there and what it does uh, and there was an element of that i think around the union and in the white heat of of a referendum, then it becomes tactical. Then it becomes who are the swing voters, you know, project fear, if you like, yeah. but saying, you know, people are influenced by the economic uncertainty and this huge economic uncertainty. So it kind of, I think actually, I was critical of it at the time, uh, as I've spent more time kind of understanding what's happened and thinking about it more, I kind of absolutely see how the Better Together campaign went the way it did. And by the way, the further we get from that result, the better that result looks, right? You know, in a post-Trump, post-Brexit world. Um, but you're absolutely right. 
exactly like the tabloid you know, grievance against Brussels and the SNP's grievance against Westminster, uh, the, there isn't a counter-narrative to that. There isn't anybody, there hasn't been anybody doing what we're hoping to do to say, OK, let's just remind ourselves of the positives. There is a positive emotional, moral case uh, for union as, as there is for the European Union. Yes. And maybe if someone had been doing for the European Union what we're aiming to do for the UK, we might have seen a different result in the, in the Brexit referendum. You know, that's one way I like to think about what we're trying to do is avoid what I consider to be mistakes like the Leave vote. Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, it's, <clears throat> I wonder if this will trigger... I mean, I, I'm sure there are people... I mean, I suppose the People's Vote campaign is in some way, even though it's around a specific ask, mm. is trying to at least inject some passion into the pro-European case yes. that's frankly never been there on a mass scale. Agreed. Although, actually, it's interesting. I'm, I'm not sure I've heard much of that being about the positive emotional case for mm. Europe. There's not much talk of, you know, unity, solidarity, harmony. It's about this is an economic disaster. Now, I think they're right. (laughs) Um, The extent to which it's a disaster we could debate. I think it's economically damaging. My personal view, the main reason why I voted Remain, was not actually because of the economics. You know, the economic, I, I think it's a bad economic decision to leave the European Union. By the way, an order of magnitude less bad than the same analysis would show for Scotland leaving the UK, but put that to one side. But for me, by far and away, the more compelling arguments were about, you know, unity, solidarity, harmony. Peace. Peace, exactly. <laughs> you know, maintaining peace in Europe. They seem to me like better reasons. And actually, even the people's vote, again, probably rightly, because now it's tactical, right? Yeah. Now it's, you know, it's day-to-day politics. And so, yes, it's all about this is a terrible economic disaster and look at the damage it's going to be caused and we're going to be stockpiling medicines and all of that. So, yes. I think it's probably doing the right thing tactically, but it's not actually making the positive emotional case for Europe. So in terms of making the positive emotional case Mm. for the union, how hard is that to do at a time of Brexit, a Tory government and austerity? Quite difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, Brexit in particular, of course, means, Mm. you know, uh, trying to get traction in any debate that's not about Brexit is incredibly difficult. Yeah. So uh, now at some level, that is a transient issue. You know, whatever happens, more clarity will uh, will evolve. Um, I think, you know, the, the austerity and Tory government, take them in turn. Austerity, I mean, actually, it's quite easy still to make a positive emotional case because all you have to do is do do the analysis that says, well, if, for example, the union wasn't a union and Scotland was separate, Wales was separate, Northern Ireland was separate, uh, what would the economic implications of that be in the context of the global economic uh, position that we're in? Mm. And, of course, one of the great benefits of union is we pool and share. You know, we split the bill, if you like, in a kind of restaurant sense. So Scotland isn't asked to pay its own way. And so while Scotland has taken a share of austerity, actually, if you look at it objectively, it's taken a slightly lighter share of austerity than the rest of the UK because of the way the Barnett formula works, which we could talk about. Um, But Scotland, as the famous JAIRS, Government Expenditure and Revenue Scotland (laughs) figures, you know, but those figures show Scotland at the moment would have a deficit of 7.9% after, you know, 10 years of austerity, Scotland standalone wouldn't have been able to run a deficit for that long. It clearly just isn't fiscally sustainable. So one of the benefits of pooling and sharing, ironically, is that, yes, we've been able to share austerity. And by sharing it, on average, it's not as bad as it would have been. In terms of um, 
the sovereignty argument, and it, I think it's the most compelling, particularly with the context of Brexit. There mm. is a sense, and I don't subscribe to the idea that 2014 was all about wanting to stay in the EU through the UK. I think that's become a, a, a well-used argument, but the idea that the 2014 Scottish independence referendum was all about Scottish people wanting to stay in the EU, yeah. that really wasn't part of the, the wider discourse. Yeah. Trident was a bigger issue in that referendum yeah. than, than the EU was. But nevertheless, there is a sense that Scottish people have stuck with the union and look what the English have gone and done with it. And I have huge sympathy for that argument yes. because the, the 2014 referendum was, was emotional and divisive and it, it, it emotional in good ways as well. It brought out lots of ideas. It, it, it forced people to think about their future in a way that probably they never had in any other uh, democratic exercise in Scotland in, in, in these people's yep. lifetimes. And then t- people stick with the union for all the, you know, for, all, for better or for worse... And then Brexit comes along, and yeah. the sense of betrayal in Scotland. I imagine, I imagine, maybe I'm imagining well, it to be greater than it is. No, I mean, I think it's it's there, and I felt it, yeah. you know. And I, I wrote about this at the time. I got quite a bit of grief from some people for saying, "Well, actually, you know, the world's changed. I need to think again about what I think about yeah. uh, Scotland's place in the union." You know, because my 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 style of unionism, you know, I hate that label. Yes, um, but you know, is very much a rational based on where we are, and there's an emotional element to that which I've started to understand better over the years as I've thought about you know where I come from and you know what my point of view is. Um, but when then oh, we're now leaving the EU, I think that's a terrible decision. And yes, Scotland voted as did London, as did Northern Ireland to stay in the EU. So it's a you know it's a it's a step back for sure for me and for me it was a, also a, a point to step back and think about well actually does this change my view of whether or not Scotland you know should be able to make its own decisions and of course in that really kind of boring uh, uncompelling way you then say well we are where we are two wrongs don't make a right you know if Scotland uh, I'd rather we didn't have to choose. Right, but if yeah. the reality now is Scotland has got to choose between being in the UK or being in the EU, well, actually, rationally, you choose the market that we share a lump of land with, speak the same language of, share a currency with, gives us a £10 billion fiscal transfer with which we trade four times more than we do with the rest of the EU, i.e. just because I don't like this, you know, I say it a lot, two wrongs don't make a right. I think it is wrong, uh, and I wish that, that the UK wasn't leaving the EU, but the idea that you somehow fix that by Scotland leaving the UK just doesn't add up. Now, emotionally, I think it strengthens the case. You know, I think exactly that kind of sovereignty point. But any union, including the European Union, of course, is a trade-off of not always getting your own way, however you choose to describe who you are, where you draw the the line around us. You know, one of the the, the nationalist arguments is, you know, we don't get the governments we vote for. Well, actually, as far as I'm concerned, we do, because I choose we to be the people of the United Kingdom. Yes. You know, it's just definitions of we and us. Um, So, you know, the idea that, well, we've had to compromise as being in the UK, and we've had a very big compromise, which is now we're leaving the EU, doesn't mean that that compromise isn't worth it. Uh, The nature of unions is there will always be situations where you don't get what you want. Otherwise, you know... (laughs) Well, that's very true. I I just wonder if the economic arguments are being... In terms of the way voters perceive them, are being trumped slightly by emotional arguments and by cultural arguments, and is there not... Is that not having less of a, an impact now than so people saying, look, you know, is. basically, uh, England hates immigrants and yep. we're a modern European outward looking Scotland. We're being held back by this sort of right wing knackered UKIP yeah. South. Yeah. And, and, you know, and obviously that's a lazy series of stereotypes and sound bites, yeah. which, well, I mean, demonstrably don't work. I mean, you just have to look at the polling on, you know, 
I, I, I'm pretty sure that the SNP calculated that had you know when Brexit happened that they would see a surge in support for independence, mm. and they haven't. You know, it is still the case. There are no polls, certainly nothing you know consistent over any period of time that suggests that people in Scotland have changed their view on independence. And part of that is as many people who are anti-Europe, pro-independence, have switched uh, to wanting to remain in the UK. You know, it is just not as binary as, as, as they try and paint it. And those lazy stereotypes about knuckle-dragging racists in England and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, that doesn't quite stack up. Uh, you know, the, England is a broad place. You know, look at London as, yes. as, you know, the prime example where we're sitting at the moment and obviously that also voted uh, to remain in the EU. So whilst those emotional arguments are there, I don't think they've, um, I don't think they've really moved the dial in terms of independence. And I think part of that is the economic stuff. Now, we could have lengthy debates about the subtle arguments of, of economics and about fiscal transfers and about uh, trade barriers and trade friction and yeah. all of that sort of stuff, which most people don't think about. But what most people can see is the disruption that is being caused or potentially being caused by Brexit. Yes. And people can do the, you know, the, the mental math that just says... It would be even worse, right? Because we don't share a currency with Europe. Yeah. Look at all the pain we're going through. We, we don't have the integrated machinery of state that we have in the UK with Europe. And look at just the pain of trying to sort out the repatriation of these few powers that are with yeah. Europe. So I think people can see, you know, it's been made real. The Brexiteers, you know, it'd be the simplest deal in the world. And of course, we can just leave and all of that. That's clearly nonsense. Now, you don't need to have done sophisticated analysis on it to be sitting in Scotland going... I remember when Alex Salmon said it would all basically be fine and it would cost us £250 million and we'd be out. That's clearly bullshit, right? Um, And I think that's the one thing that Brexit does. There's the one positive for me of Brexit um, is it does just give us a... Uh, an order of magnitude easier example of what it would take to break one union that allows people sitting in Scotland to go, crikey, you know, (laughs) how much worse would taking Scotland out of the UK be? So I think it's made the the costs of separation real to people. And I think that overcomes the emotion. In terms of your work and, and, um, you know, the impact that you could potentially have, Mm. um, you don't sound Scottish. So how hard is that? How hard is that saying these things in Scotland? Because Mm. people just say, well, you would say that. Yeah. English, well, so, so I, I mean, partly, I suppose that's why I'm doing these islands, right? Yeah. So these islands is not a Scottish thing. It's a, it's, it's, it's a United Kingdomish. What are the problems, by the way? The lack yeah. of a term for the United Kingdom, uh, people of the United Kingdom. But that's one of the reasons, frankly, why I'm, I, 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 you know, I'm working on something that takes a broader view that isn't a narrow Scottish thing. Because it's true, the fact that I don't sound Scottish. I, I speak a bit of Gaelic. I was educated on a Scottish island. I went to university in Scotland. I've created jobs in Scotland. My businesses are in Scotland. But that doesn't matter if I don't sound Scottish enough. And, you know, I could make a wee bit of an effort sometimes, you know, and I can well, get a wee bit of an angle on that's it. That's good. But um, or, well, because I used to live on the island, so you know, I can I can do the go down to the post office. Um, <laughs> I'll take the Land Rover. Um, wow, that's so good. Go down to the police station. That's um, so specific. No, but it, cause it, but and it's wonderful that kind of lilting. I mean, there's a whole different yeah. kind of debate there. So, and I, funnily enough, as a bit of an aside, but when I when I moved from Isla to Glasgow to study, and I was a chukter, right? I kind of spoke <laughs> like that. And, I was like, yeah. and so I got the piss taken out of me for being a chukter for about kind of, two months before I learned to put on a Glaswegian accent. Oh, I'm just in for a pint. You know, quite heavy by the way, just in front of me, you understand, all of that sort of stuff. And then I went down to London, and similarly, for the first couple of months in London, I was that dodgy jock, you know, in the Scots gear and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, lightheartedly. And then this 
you know, bland accent kind of re-emerged. Oh, no, it's lovely. Um, but no, so yeah, I mean, it, it is an issue. But again, that's why, you know, that's why, I, you know, if I was campaigning, for example, were there to be, you know, a, a, another referendum campaign in Scotland, I'm sure I would be a voice, but I couldn't lead that voice because I'm not Scottish enough. You know, people love to point out that Alastair Darling wasn't actually born in Scotland. Do they? Uh, yeah, Where was did. he born? I, I thought you know, he I was. No, he, he was. I mean, he's as Scottish as you can be. Yeah. But I mean, technically, he was. I, I don't. I can't remember the full story. I just remember during the referendum campaign, <laughs> some nats on Twitter got very excited by the fact that, you know, actually, he wasn't born in Scotland. Wasn't ethnically I mean, Scottish. Uh, yeah, exactly. But yeah, so yeah, of course, it is an issue. But that's also why what I tend to do in the, in the context of the Scottish debate is focus on facts. Focus yeah. just on objective analysis. Um, and, you know, again, you know, you can have the, all the cyber nats kind of piling on about, he's not an economist, he's not. All I'm doing is looking at the actual data of what is the case today and making sure that's well presented. And presenting that well means drawing some graphs, in my view. And they're oh, it's all graphs, it's all graphs. <laughs> but that's why what I tend to focus on is say, well, let's just be clear about some facts. Let's just make sure we, we you know, fight. I, you know, I like to say, you know, in Scotland uh, in particular, the issue is not that we don't have a well-informed electorate. It's, it's that we have a very well-misinformed electorate. Uh, and the SNP are very good at that. You know, they're very good at sowing the seeds of doubt or spreading via the social media back channels in particular bits of misinformation that Nicola Sturgeon would never stand up and say, yes. oh, we're not getting the whiskey export duty that Scotland should have, or, you know, they're stealing our money. She wouldn't go that because it doesn't add up. You, you can't justify it. But they can put that stuff out through some of the uh, less intellectually robust SNP MPs and MSPs. We'll put that stuff out on social media and it gets spread. And that needs to be fought. It doesn't really matter what accent you're using to fight that stuff. Yes. If you're saying this is just a statement of objective fact and here are the sources and here's why that's the case. So that's why I tend to focus focus on that stuff. One thing I always ask, I've been very lucky to have some excellent SNP guests on, John mm. Swinney and Angus Robertson among them, mm. is if Scotland was never independent, you know, how unfulfilled would you feel? And I suppose that I should put the reverse to you, that if mm. Scotland were to go for independence at some point yeah. in the future, how catastrophic would that be for you, you know, emotionally? Or do you think actually, on the balance of things, you know, you'd rather Scotland be in the Union, but actually you could live in an independent Scotland and life wouldn't change that much? I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, it's a really good question. Um, and I sound like an X Factor contestant. Now. <laughs> I've been on a journey with this one. Matt. I've been on a journey. Um, you know, if you'd have asked me that question, uh, well, four years ago, you know, in 2014, independence referendum, I'd have said, you know, based on the economics, that's really what's driving me to my view. And if the economics were different, I might have a different view. Mm. Because, you know, the economics was so compelling. And I'm a businessman. I've got business in Scotland. That's what I'm working on. That's what I'm thinking of. And I could see how immediately it would, it would cause hardship in Scotland. We'd have to reduce public expenditure. That's still the case. So for me, it's a, I've got a very strong economic case. And that was my way in to this debate. And therefore, you say, take away the economics. Maybe my view would be different. Would I really mind? Mm. The journey I've been on has been to start to think more about those emotional things, about those emotional bonds uh, across the United Kingdom. You know, there's a Gordon Brown uses, you know, 300 years of shared endeavour. Oh, that's you know, right, it's yeah. a great phrase. But there is something there. So I, I don't think, you know, I'm not, you know, famously it was said of John Swinney. Uh, I, I listened to the podcast. He was very good. Uh, but, you know, famously it was said of him that he would live in a cave to be free. <laughs> you know, the, the economics just don't yeah. matter. The hardship doesn't matter yeah. because, you know, he's got a flagpole with a saltire on it in his garden because that's yeah. what really matters. I, you know, I'm not a Union Jack flying uh, unionist. Yeah. Um, 
But when I force myself to think that stuff through and say, well, let's imagine, let's imagine the Barnet formula was scrapped tomorrow. Yeah. Let's imagine there was no fiscal transfer from the rest of the UK to Scotland. So Scotland was fully fiscally autonomous. Yes. And let's, for the sake of this thought experiment, say the UK remains in the EU and Scotland could be in the EU. So therefore, actually, the market access points would all kind of go away. Um, and let's assume that Scotland would join the euro because that's about the only credible yes. um, currency plan. Now, none of that seems very likely, by the way. But if you put all that together, what would I then think about Scotland being independent? Uh, and the truth is, I wouldn't like it. Now, it wouldn't be a life-shattering disaster for me, because that's not how I define myself. <laughs> but would I, would I still want Scotland to remain in the United Kingdom if all those economic reasons for staying in the United Kingdom were taken away? I now realise, yes, I would. Now, partly... Uh, and it's kind of interesting to look at this. I was born in England, right? I moved to Scotland when I was nine years old. Um, one of the, you know, if you look at the the breakdown of people who voted yes and no, one of the strongest determinants of whether someone voted no to independent was were they born outside Scotland. Seventy two percent of uh, people born outside Scotland who voted in the referendum voted uh, to keep the union together. Yes. So you know we're all we're, we are all products of our upbringing of our circumstance. So it's perhaps not surprising that because I've got this accent because I was born down south because I spent a lot of time you know my career was kind of built in London. Uh, it's perhaps not surprising that I feel a stronger emotional tie to the United Kingdom than I do to Scotland. And I think, you know, in the context of a uh, an uncertain world, uh, you know, with a angry Russia and a mad US president and, you know, everything else that's going on, North Korea, etc., do I think that seeing things break up, frankly, for the same reason that I voted Remain, is the same reason why I would not like Scotland to be independent from the rest of the UK. I just don't think that would be a good thing. And partly, that's because I think Tory governments come and go. You know, you made the point earlier on, and we I didn't um, respond to it, but, you know, does the fact that we've got, you know, Tory government in Westminster make it harder to make the case of a union? Well, no, because you don't need that big a sense of of history and perspective to know that political winds uh, change, that tides turn. And so that's transient. You know, I, 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 I didn't vote for this Tory government, um, but that's transient. Um, whereas separation, you know, is for life. There's a, oh, that's <laughs> right. Know, um, or for a generation or, you know, it's for many generations. However long a generation yes. is these days. Um, I, I wonder just just in terms of the, you know, the... the um, is ethnicity the right way to frame that yes/no vote? And as you mm. say, seventy-two percent of no voters um, uh, had, you know, uh, or rather, if, if yes, you were born outside the you were Scotland, you were seventy-two percent likely. Doesn't that mean that in terms of the yes side, the real Scottish people voted? For independence, you know, people who are truly Scottish wanted to leave the UK. Well, it depends on your definition of truly Scottish. I mean, you know, and there you go. You, you and know. I'm being provocative. No, no, of course, of course, you are. And, and as you say, you know, when you paint the picture, uh, when the nationalists like to paint the picture of the other rest of or England in particular being, you know, knuckle drag, dragging racists who are kind of xenophobic. Because uh, remember, you know, those people uh, who were born outside Scotland include lots of Europeans, for example, <laughs> who are in Scotland. Now that doesn't quite kind of fit the narrative. Um, but I think there is an element of um, I mean, you know, you love your football. I think yes. I think football's a really interesting example here, yeah. actually, right? Um, in fact, I believe, you may know, actually, but I believe that Tony Blair was quite keen for, yes. the, for the Scottish teams to join... A British the, the, Premier League, yeah. basically. And, of course, part of... Well, that was a social 
reason. Absolutely. Uh, you know, that if you were travelling to away games in Glasgow and Edinburgh and vice versa, yeah. you know, if when you went north of the border, the back pages didn't change, that didn't change, that would yeah. be very different. So, yes, there's an insular Scottishness, and I think, you know, football is one of those examples of it, which can lead to a, a sort of narrow view of nationalism, if you like, that just says emotionally we're just different. I mean, one of the things I would argue, of course, is one of the wonders of the United Kingdom is that after 300 years of union, 311 years of union, let's get it right, uh, you know, after all that time, that sense of Scottish identity is as strong as it is. Yeah. That the, 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 the nature of the incorporating union, which was the act of union, has not been to suppress these national identities. You know, Welsh is a stronger language in Wales than Irish is in, in an independent Ireland. So the idea that, you know, one of the downsides of union is it kind of suppresses your national identity just doesn't stand up to any analysis at all. So in a way, the fact that you have this kind of strong sense of Scottishness and that kind of emotional will actually be probably quite like to be separate... Let's not forget, they voted marginally, those people who were born in Scotland for independence, based on a false prospectus, right? Based on, you know, oil forecasts of 6.8 to 7.9 billion pounds a year. Um, but that, that wouldn't have affected their vote, would it, do you think? Oh, I, no, I do, actually. Really? I do. No, having lived through that a lot, you know, there's a reason why Alex Salmond kept banging on about we would have been, I forget the number now, 3.2 billion better off over the last five years if we'd been independent. The Gares figures show that we'd have been better off. You know that, Alistair, the Gares figures show. You know, they banged on about that a lot. You know, it was independence will make you better off. And, you know, you know, you, you, you're, you're a political junkie, right? Um, you know, it's, it's like the kind of all the tax debates. You know, people don't mind paying more tax. They're all in favour of paying more tax because they can see that until it comes to voting. And then, right. but as long as I don't pay more tax, right? Um, and, I, and I do think, you know, I, I think the... It's often positioned as two separate arguments, right? The emotional argument and the economic argument. Uh, and I think that's how they are perceived. But in fact, they're absolutely intrinsically interlinked. The economic case only exists because of the emotional case. The yes. economic case only exists because, and the social attitude survey stuff on this, you know, if you ask people, certainly prior to the independence referendum anyway, you ask people in the rest of the UK, do you think it's reasonable that taxes raised in the rest of the UK should be spent on welfare in Scotland? And a significant majority, I forget, 60% plus said, yeah, that's reasonable. Mm. Now, that's quite a strong emotional case yeah. uh, from which stems the economic case. So that's important. But I also think, uh, you know, that people quite rightly say, you, you know, you can't win this thing on numbers. You know, it can't just be about numbers. You can't, it's not about a calculator. It's about heart and emotion. A, they're not distinct. And B, you underestimate people's economic rationality at your peril, as, you know, many, many politicians have learned to their cost, right? Um, and so if the Scottish people had realised how economically ruinous in my view independence would have been and you know there's been eight billion taken out of the case that was presented to uh, the scottish people at the time then i don't believe you know i i believe that would have moved the dial in terms of how people would have voted so in 2014 the prospectus was this white paper which was um widely derided at the time because it didn't deal with the currency issue and as you yep. say it was all based on oil yep. um, and it was more of a manifesto it was an SNP manifesto rather than an actual yes. blueprint for an independent nation even though it was a Scottish government document which is interesting the problem with that referendum was that was that both the UK government and the Scottish government yeah. had politicised their civil services and it was, it, yes, it was, it was disappointing to see on both sides um, now we have the Sustainable Growth Commission which ah which is a different prospectus for an independence economy, which on the surface at least seems to accept that the, the economic outlook is slightly more grim yes. in the short term. 
Although Andrew Wilson, the, the author of it, isn't massively keen on getting into the debate on the figures, or, or maybe at least not with you. No, exactly. I mean, he refuses to, to debate with me. Um, Why? Uh, well, <sighs> have, you talk, have you spoken to him at all? Has there been any sort of... I have, I have met him at two different events, one a social event, one an event that was kind of launching this. Um, and, you know, he shook my hand and, and um, sort of turned away, uh, shall we say. I mean, the, the, it's difficult, right? Because the so let, let's take a step back on the on the Sustainable Growth Commission and Andrew Wilson's work. The first thing to say is that uh, it is it starts with a realistic assessment of the starting point, yeah. Uh, because it does exactly what the white paper did, by the way, and says the JS figures are right because they are. You know, the question is what what they mean. So people say that the JS figures, that the, the figures from which we all use to define, you know, how Scottish the Scottish economy is currently running, they, but they're not the numbers for an independent Scotland. Well, of course they're not. They're last year's actual numbers. They couldn't be. But what they tell us is the platform on which an independent Scotland would need to be based. Yes. They allow us to say, right, here's where we start. This, it, from an accountant's point of view, here are the pro forma accounts, yeah. right? Now, what changes from here? What would the impact of independence be? Both what we'd want it to be and what it would, you know, what might happen that we didn't want to happen. And he does that, right? So he starts with that. So did the white paper, by the way. But what the white paper did is it started in a year when oil revenues were about eight billion pounds and said, yes. let's assume that'll stay. So he knows he can't do that. But you know, it's we're in a ridiculous situation, right? Where I feel the need to applaud Andrew Wilson for using the Scottish government's data as a starting point, but he does. So that's that's good. Um, this document, the, the, the Growth Commission was two years in, in the writing. It was meant to be published after a year, and then it spent a year being battered around by the SNP. Um, and you can see that if you read the document. So, um, you know, clearly what's happened is he's tried to take a, an economically rational view. Yeah. He has stretched way beyond the limit uh, some of the assumptions that he's made to then try and make a case add up. Um, in particular, I noticed statistical gerrymandering around saying, you know, smaller economies perform better than larger economies. Um, and yeah, it's just not true. Um, and they create some evidence to do that by just choosing a subset of smaller economies that exclude those that perform less well. Well, the big, the big headline was that every household would be £4,500 a year better off well, or something like that. And exactly. it was based on the fact that if we were Holland... Exactly. Exactly. That was basically that it. That was literally it. Um, so they just they, they took a subset of small economies. They excluded all of those that had a lower GDP per capita than Scotland. I mean, literally, if you recreate the analysis, they just said, let's only look at those that are better than us. Then let's rank them in order. Yeah. Which one's in the middle? Holland. We could be that. That was the level of sophistication of the analysis. I mean, it's obviously unsophisticated and it's easy to um, joke about it, and I have. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, there's a point there, isn't there? There is, is at least an aspiration that you can say, actually, some small nations can do it. Yep. Why can't Scotland? Well, exactly. So, the, so this is where, and you know, in a 100,000-word document that it is, it takes a while to unpick this, right? So the first thing is they make these assertions about small economies versus large economies, which aren't true, and that's not what they try and do. But... Of course, it makes sense to look at successful small economies and saying, what could we do that the successful small economies do? So that's reasonable, right? That approach is reasonable. The problem is that if you then follow through the logic of what they do in that approach, so they say, for example, we're not going to follow the high income inequality, low tax models of Singapore and Hong Kong, which are in their smaller... I mean, Scotland and Hong Kong, I'm not sure there's many similarities, but they still include those in their cohort when they say, therefore, we could achieve this level of growth. So, and actually, if I mean, what, what did they say? Um, Finland, Denmark, New Zealand, I think, were the three that they said we'd most like to emulate them. Yeah. And if you look at the growth of those economies versus Scotland, guess what? No difference. 
right? Um, you know, Denmark isn't one of the ones they try. So, uh, oh, oh, uh, sorry, the Netherlands isn't one of the ones they try and emulate. So if you look at what they actually try and emulate, turns out they perform pretty much the same as Scotland anyway. And yet they still say, we'll now... and. So here's, here's, here's the problem, right? They then say, well, we assume you can grow 0.7% faster than uh, we would grow within the UK by being a small economy. No evidence to support that. And none of what they actually recommend is consistent with those countries that are growing faster. So that's problem number one. They then say, and we'll outperform that growth by a further 1% per annum for 15 years. Because that gets you to Holland level of GDP per capita yeah. after 15 years, right? There's no connection between the strategy and the outcome, um, and so it just and, and the problem is the reason why they do that is because they're trying to close this gap, which is the fiscal gap, which is met by the Barnett formula at the moment. They're trying to find a way of closing that with growth, and even with those, frankly ridiculous growth assumptions they still then have to say and we grow spending slower than revenue because obviously that's the only way you can close that gap yeah. uh, and if you grow spending slower than revenue they the, the model they use says one percent slower well guess what if revenue growth isn't greater than one percent which it hasn't been for the last 15 years then you're going to be reducing spending it's more austerity and so buried in there, there was the honesty that said, we've got to get the deficit down to 3% in 10 years. By the way, if you're going to launch your own currency, you need to do a lot better than just getting your deficit down to 3% in 10 years. Because you need some mass reserves. Because you need to build reserves. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, you know, the European fiscal compact is 0.5%. The example economies that they want to um, replicate, none of those run a deficit as high as 3%. In fact, a couple of them run a surplus. The highest one, I think, is a 1% deficit. So they're not ambitious enough, but at least they say we'd have to get the deficit down. They say they're not going to do that by raising taxes. Um, they're going to do it by reducing expenditure or not growing expenditure as fast as taxes, which may well mean reducing expenditure. I mean, fascinatingly, what they don't do is say we'd reverse any of the austerity cuts that we've been subject to by Westminster. Yeah. So they project forward a few years to give them a slightly better starting point, i.e. carry on Westminster austerity. And if they thought Westminster austerity was the wrong thing, on day one of independence, what would you do? You'd reverse it. But they don't. They bank that and then they carry on with more of it, which is why a lot of the, you know, the common wheel and the kind of um, the, 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 the sort of harder left... Um, Independent supporters hate the Growth Commission because it had a degree of honesty about it. I'm not a fan of the Growth Commission because I don't think it's got enough honesty about it. Um, but you add all that. I mean, the problem. So, so then there's one other thing, right, which is so that's what the Growth Commission actually says. And then there's what they, in inverted commas, including Andrew Wilson himself, it has to be said, but, you know, and Nicola Sturgeon and, you know, other SNP MPs, what they say the Growth Commission says. So one of the most outrageous things, and Sturgeon did this on the on the House, and there was a Freedom of Information request, so I know that my comments were picked up, and, and, and uh, you know they were trying to justify their case. She said on on in Holyrood, if we'd have followed the Growth Commission's recommendations, we would have avoided austerity over the last ten years. I mean, she said that, <laughs> uh, and it was said by uh, I forget Kate, um, somebody, an SNP MP on Question Time said it as well, and I spoke to her face to face afterwards, like, what's going on? Um, and what they were doing was they were saying, well, if you assume one and a half percent revenue growth and we grow spending one percent less, that's half a percent spending growth. Therefore, they recommended half a percent spending growth. That's better than the last 10 years have been. You say, no, 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 no. <laughs> but the last 10, what you actually recommended was grow spending slower than revenue such that you get to a three percent deficit after 10 years. 
We know what the revenue growth was in the last 10 years. So you'd have had to cut spending far more than was cut to get to your 3% deficit in 10 years. And it's, and it's you know, this is demonstrably true that if you followed these recommendations, austerity would have been worse. But the sound bites are out there and it's we'd be £4,000 better off. That's what the Growth Commission says. It's all really rational and it's an alternative to austerity. And actually, it's austerity max. It's austerity plus. Now, you ask why Andrew Wilson won't debate it with me. It's because having that stuff exposed is probably not helpful. And it's, I mean, to be fair, when, you know, Tony Blair refused to do leaders debates, yes. it's kind of the same thing. There's, he knows there's only downside for him in yeah. debating this um, because... Um, so I've this. Sorry, there is something interesting yeah, yeah. here about the, the the nature of the uh, the kind of the Scottish chumocracy um, of you know the, the, the Scottish press and the um, business community and uh, you know it's a small small country. I have had literally people literally put their arm around my shoulder and say, Do you know, you've been a bit bit harsh on Andrew with that stuff, Kev. You know, oh that was a bit really you know, yeah, yeah yeah. I mean you know it, it's. You know, it's not really helpful. To, and these are people who, you know, are kind of on my side yeah, in inverted yeah. commas. People who are economically rational would say, well, you've been a bit hard on him. And, like, you know, as I say, it's not with the best will in the world. It's not my fault that his report isn't any good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so he doesn't want to debate it with me. But in a way, it, it just so there are two things that I wanted to ask. One is, is effectively that the SNP are straightjacketing themselves by saying... Um, we want a growing economy. We're not going to do it in these particular in the ways that actually would grow it. Theoretically, an independent Scotland, if it pursued other economic mm-hmm. uh, policies not favoured by the SNP, could boom. If they did go for a you know a kind of low tax um, model, yep. that would give them a huge competitive advantage over the rest of the UK. You could get particularly you know Scotland's finance sector reinvigorated, yep. and you would suck in investment from around the world. It, there's sure. there is an economic case for an independent Scotland. It's just not the one that the SNP exactly, and, it, and, and, it, and it's not a very progressive case, right? Because you know what you're doing is increasing tax competition. Uh, the way you increase tax competition is you get you know big corporates to pay less tax net. Yeah. That's you know it's clearly what. So it's the race to the bottom, uh, and that's why to the SNP's credit, um, you know, and I agree with them on this in the same way as I agree with them on immigration. Uh, you know, the, the, and I should say that the other big positive, the one thing the Growth Commission did. Um, which uh, I think was a bold, uh, positive move, was to say Scotland would require more immigration and we yes. know, we'd actively support that. And I applaud that and I think that's right. It's the three Ps. Uh, population... Oh, what were they in now? Damn it. Oh, good, you forget stuff as well. I forgot it. <laughs> I population, something else, something else. And that, but, that is very progressive. And, and the, 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 sorry, the, 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 you know, I like my, I like my, yeah. um, my data. There's a, there's a wonderful fact, you'll like this. Uh, in Scotland, on average, we die slightly more than two years younger than in the rest of the UK. Oh, my right? God. Life expectancy in Scotland is, is more than two years less than the rest of the UK. Second fact, the average age of people in Scotland is two years older so it's younger people that are dying. Well, no, it's younger people that are leaving. And that's the immigration point. So, you know, the old dependency, you know, the dependency ratio, right? The yeah. ratio of people who are generating tax to the people who are consuming tax. Yes. It's very simplistic. You know, at the beginning of your life and the end of the life, you consume tax. And in the middle yeah. of your life, you generate tax. And Scotland's dependency ratio is worse than the rest of the UK, despite the fact that we die younger because net migration. Fewer people come to Scotland because, as you know, most migration is economic. Migration is economically revenue yeah. generative because it's people coming from Eastern Europe to work, right? Um, so Scotland has this rather, and 
by the way, there's a very interesting debate about why do people in Scotland have a two-year lower life expectancy and to what extent is that systemic, to what extent is that a function of decades of, uh, you know, industrial policy and all of that, which you can blame the UK for. I mean, that's a very interesting path to go down. But the bottom line is... Also, it's just colder there, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, that must have something to... Maybe not two years, but it's freezing up there. No wonder people die a little bit younger. Well, Environmental factors. There are issues around deep-fried Mars bars and alcohol (laughs) and cigarettes and all of that as well, which sorry, again, as another little aside, but when uh, it's less true now, but the, the when the JS figures first came out, one of the few areas in which Scotland outperformed the rest of the UK was in uh, alcohol duty, cigarette duty, gambling duty. Oh, syntaxes. Syntaxes, exactly. Wow. Uh, which may or may not be related to... I mean, I th- to be fair, genuinely, I think there are far bigger issues. There's suffering the Glasgow effects and all of this sort of yes. stuff you know, around, around um, sort of endemic poverty and, and the, the effects of that. The, the point being, though, you know, nice, nice fact about that, about the um, dependency ratio, but Scotland needs immigration even more than the rest of the UK needs immigration. I think the rest of the UK needs immigration as well. Um, so that was a, you know, that was something that the Growth Commission, you know, grasped and, and did well. Um, but what they, I think, to to their credit, I don't think they'd get popular support for it because it doesn't fit with the kind of sort of liberal um, progressive uh, image that at least they, the SNP like to paint, um, is to say, and then we're going to do a race to the bottom on tax and regulation. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I... I I can't see how Nicola Sturgeon could stand up uh, and, you know, she could, she's, you know, she's a good politician. She can stand up and say lots of stuff that she may or may not believe uh, and she can say stuff that's quite inconsistent with what she said two days before. But even Nicola Sturgeon, I think, couldn't carry that off because, as you know, you know, part of their anti-Brexit rhetoric is you're going to turn, you know, the UK into a low tax, low regulation, uh, all of that. You could do that for Scotland. That's not what they're arguing to do, and therefore that case doesn't exist. Now, if you want to make that case, the question then becomes a moral, emotional one, which is, do we want to live in that sort of Scotland? Mm. Do I want to live in a in a Hong Kong, Singapore, high-income inequality, low tax? No, I don't think I do, and I don't think most people would. So they're trying to, you know, they... they, they, they they can't have it both ways, no. uh, and that's why they're stuck, and that's why they don't have a majority of support for independence. You know, they haven't managed to square that. In a way, don't, don't you don't you have the best of both worlds living in Scotland, where you have Scotland still in the UK from your point of view, mm. but you also have an SNP government that is led by a, a competent, strong leader that mm-hmm. is by far. Well, Ruth Davidson's excellent as well, so yes, maybe not actually probably equal in terms of ability and, and, and talent. Um, but you have a, you have a, you have an impressive leader. Yes, you have on the whole um, a competent government. I mean, education is a, is a huge issue for, for the SNP, yeah. but you get a better deal than the rest of the UK. You get a, you get a, you get a Scottish government that's kind of capable, mm-hmm. and you keep Scotland in the in a way. The SNP government is. Um, is it positive for unionists in Scotland, or is that uh, too ludic- well, so ludicrously provocative? It, that, 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 I mean, it's it's obviously intentionally and, and rightly provocative. Um, I mean, I certainly know people uh, still, actually, which drives me up the wall, by the way, um, who will vote SNP um, and would absolutely never vote for independence. Uh, for independence for that reason. Are they on the left? Uh, yes, actually, the examples I know, the people I, I mean, cause because most of the people I know are. Um, but to, I mean, I can sort of. Yeah, to no, be fair, tactically you can see it because you can say, "Well, I'll never give them independence." Obviously, you're sort of fueling independence by voting the SNP in a, in a way, yeah. but but I think so, so I think a couple of things. A couple Richard things. Leonard, I know, I know, 
don't get me started. Um, but well, so a couple of things. First of all, I agree absolutely with your uh, kind of core thesis that you know Sturgeon is an impressive politician. Yeah. Davison is also a very impressive yeah. politician, I have to say. And for someone who has never voted for either of those parties, they're the two politicians I find most they're both impressive. Excellent. Yeah. They're both very, very good. As I've often said, if only Nicola Sturgeon would use her powers for good. But that's a, that's a, that's a, another point. Um, but the, but I think there is. Um, the kind of SNP as party of competent governance thing yes. is starting to wear a bit thin. And partly, you know, you can look at what's happening with education, the education gap. You know, Scotland used to have the education system, that you know, the pride of Scotland in the world. Yes. Uh, and it has got worse and worse and worse. Now, do I believe that the SNP want, you know, Scottish education to be poor? Of course, I, you know, of course not. Of course they want to make it better. Um, but they're not doing so. Um, and you can look at some of the stuff on health and then you get into all sorts of arguments. And I think that's a tricky territory, frankly. Um, but, you know, they also have this kind of very universalism, you know, approach. So you know, free elderly care for or personal care for elderly people, no prescription charges. There are no A roads with tolls in Scotland. There are no toll bridges in Scotland. Um, now, at one level, you go, well, that's great. And I'm relatively well off. So fine. You know, I benefit from all that stuff, too. I actually quite like to see some more progressive policies that actually try to redistribute wealth a bit more in Scotland, because I think that could be done. And they have the tax powers to do it. They have the welfare powers to do it. Broadly speaking, it'll be interesting to see the next Scottish budget, but broadly speaking, they're not really doing it. They're not using those powers. So I think there are arguments to say, and I don't see it waiting in the wings, I have to say, but, you know, it would be possible to imagine a more progressive Scottish government that would do a better job than uh, than the SNP do, partly because the SNP spend, I was going to say the majority of their effort, that's unfair, but what's the thing they care about most? Independence. Yes. And so... Everything they do, you know, at the moment, whenever this podcast goes out, you know, at the moment, you know, Nicola Sturgeon is suddenly kind of embracing, uh, you know, the parties to come with some kind of alternative to Brexit. Let's let's get a Brexit version. And you know that all of that is based on a calculation that says what's the best outcome for us to then get independence. Now, that might be in this particular case of trying to get effectively staying in the EU kind of outcome. I might favour that outcome, but I know her motivation for it is to then make it easier for her to then push for separation. Yes. And so as long as that's the case, I think it's harder and harder. I mean, I can't vote SNP um, because I know that they're, you know, they, they only have two objectives, uh, you know, constitutionally for the SNP, and that is uh, the furtherance of Scottish in- interests and independence for Scotland. That's it. There's nothing in there about, you know, wealth redistribution or social justice or, you know, whatever other you know, sound bites you like. And as long as that's the case, I don't think they will consistently do what's right for Scotland. But to your earlier point, do we kind of have the best of both worlds at the moment? If I didn't find myself having to spend or choosing to spend a large portion of my life countering the misinformation that's pushed out by the Scottish government around uh, around the, the nature of our relationship with the UK, that continuous grievance mongering, then yes, the grievance mongering is quite a high price to pay, I have to say. It can be exhausting. I mean, I, I kind of, I always feel that you have to be really fair in these things and say, and it's the same with Leave and Remain. You know, we all get very animated about perceived lies told, well, definite lies told by the Leave campaign. The Remain campaign wasn't perfect either, and there were uh, exaggerations, Absolutely. and there were ludicrous claims George made. George in particular, yes. Absolutely, and David Cameron about, you yeah. know, ISIS want us to leave the EU. <laughs> I mean, you can sort of understand where the logic comes from, but it was a ridiculous thing to say. It so was. there are faults on both sides there in are. these arguments, and I always wonder, particularly with Twitter, 
Well, I certainly felt in 2014 that the, 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 the behaviour of a lot of Yes supporters away from the mainstream mm. was awful and was yeah. aggressive and was bullying and was there was lots of oh, misinformation, yes. all that sort of thing. <laughs> Equally, whenever I've had an SNP guest on here or I interact yeah. with... So I get very well with Stuart McDonald, who's a great yeah. SNP MP for Glasgow South and a, and a really good bloke. And yeah. occasionally, well, I'll tweet, you know, that we've been hanging out or whatever... Yeah. There is a whole load of abuse yeah. he gets from unionists as well. Yeah. So it sort of depends on what part of Twitter you're looking at sometimes. Oh, no, I, I, I agree with that. And, you know, as you know, one of the... Um the joys in inverted commas of Twitter is you know you don't get to you don't get to choose your followers uh, no. you know you don't get to choose who will jump on a tweet that you do and say stuff that you you know might find abhorrent and abusive and horrible uh, so that's definitely yes you know there's definitely that on both sides I just wanted to pick up on one thing we said about the kind of the lies told during campaigns yeah. um, I do think you know the 350 million on the side of a bus was of course politically brilliant absolutely right? because they could have put the right number on the side yeah. of a bus they could have put 180 million and that's still a lot of money it's still a big number who cares <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know but of course by putting the wrong number they make everybody talk about the that's number We're still and so nobody is saying well yeah that's the cost of being in but yeah. then let's look at the benefits the, yeah. all the debate is around 350 million so you know yeah. worst case people just hear 350 million best case you you, you let them know it's 180 million yes. and you've never got on to debating the rest of it that's so right. I, I think it's a really interesting example of where you know actually tactically the way these debates work and the way stuff cycles around social media is you are better off lying than yes. you are telling the truth that's right because then you you draw the debate onto your ground well, that's it. It's about um, the attention that it gets and how do you keep the attention on. Andy Wigmore is interviewed in uh, Tim Shipman's book, All Out War, which is yeah. phenomenal. And I, I may well be misquoting it, but I think the general gist of something that he says is what they do is say something outrageous, that gets the attention. Yeah. Then they apologise, that gets some attention. Yeah. Then they'd actually go and say it again. Yeah. Which just <laughs> you know, flares everything the story Absolutely going. Right. And they don't right. care. Absolutely right. I mean, one of the the, the, the the social media stuff, though, it's interesting because it can be really useful as well. Um, I find it particularly useful because when I get the most vehement responses to stuff I say is when you realise you've you've kind of touched a nerve. Yeah. So one of the ones which which I you know is hilarious to me is in the context of Brexit, it's quite useful to talk about the UK single market. It's quite useful to to. to uh, sort of couch the, the the independence debate as about leave versus remain in the UK. Yeah. And if you do that, they get very upset. And they get very upset, particularly when you refer to the UK single market and say there is no such thing. Yeah. There is no UK single market, which, I mean, demonstrably there is. <laughs> we have it. the free movement. We have, you know, there are no customs yeah. barriers. There are no... It is obvious. Currency. And, and, and we share a currency and all of that. And then they say, well, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a single market, though, because there is no treaty. So then if you actually go and read the Act of Union, which is worth reading, by the way, quite readable, actually, the 1707 <laughs> Act of Union, which, guess what? I'll it take your word for it. It talks about prohibitions, restrictions and regulations of trade. It talks about law concerning regulation of trade. It talks about the coin being the same. It talks about duties on import and export. It is, uh, you know, it's, 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 an, it's, it's, it's what the EU uh, you know, treaties would look like in 300 years' time in terms of the language has faded. Yeah. But, of course, there is a single market there. But, but my point is the social media stuff... Of course, you have to, you know, filter out or block all the abuse. And, and it's yeah. absolutely on both sides. I mean, I do think it's worse on the nationalist side, but how can I be objective about it? Because, of course, I'm going to see the, I'm going to see the abuse I get more yes. than the, the abuse other people get. So I can't I like to try and be objective about stuff. I can't be objective about that. I can only I can only judge my experience. But there is positive. You know, you get to rehearse and understand arguments um, in a way that I think is actually really useful. 
Um, and I said, so, you know, and I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for Twitter. No, well, of course. But I mean, that's been one of the great things about Twitter is that for all the downsides of it, it's very easy to 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 meet and connect with people who are brilliant, who are, you know, and people who traditional media have not given a platform to. Yeah. Um, and I, I understand the reasons for that, yeah. but it allows experts to pop up and, and yep. give fa- you get far more insights and you get far better you get a range of views um so in that regard i mean it, it, it's been the making of you in a way uh, in in i mean in this part of my life shall we say you know it's, 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 it's worth remembering that i you know i'm a full-time businessman i have you know um but yes in terms of the extent to which i have a voice in this debate and it's a very small voice in this debate you know let's not let's not kid ourselves but the, the reason why that exists is because of blogging and twitter and you know for all of twitter's faults it's it's very democratic uh, you know, if you say stuff that's interesting and enough people think it's interesting, then they tell other people it's interesting and yeah. more people, you know, that's quite good. I yes. quite like that. Um, now, of course, it also gives rise to voices that I detest. And, you know, <laughs> let's, let's let's choose Katie Hopkins for now, you know. Yeah. So, it, you know, it doesn't always work well. But when it works well, and of course, because I think I'm right and therefore if it's working for me, it's obviously <laughs> working well. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I, I think it's net still a good thing. You know, I think it's remarkable that we have the ability to... Um, exactly, give voices to people without requiring some degree of, you know, mainstream media platform to adopt them. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I wonder just in terms of, of, of Scotland, and it's a place I have huge affection for and, and regularly fantasize about, I mean, I'm 36, but I do think I'd love to retire in Scotland. It's such a beautiful part of the world. The air's fresher, the water tastes... The tap water in Scotland... I think one of the only tweets I've ever done that's gone viral was just saying Scotland has the best tap water in the world <laughs> for all the political gags and whatever else about a footballer put on there. Now, I, now you're speaking... So, so, when I, so I was brought up on Isla, you know, the yeah. West Coast Island. Uh, where the the water just came from a, a tank behind the house, and of course it's very peaty, hence all the whiskey and all mm. of that. When I would run and up, run a bath, you couldn't see the bottom of the bath because it was so brown. Wow! Right. Now it still tasted fine. We would drink that yeah. water, but you know that kind of th- there is a there was a kind of purity and a beauty to the water, yeah. but it was a brown, sort of muddy <laughs> purity and beauty. <laughs> oh, that doesn't sound good at all. So how come it's so good now? Was well, purified, was it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, very simple. All, all this investment, simple, obvious answers. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it, I mean, one thing that kind of, the one thing that I really worry about, and it's the same with the EU debate, is that we kind of stoke a rivalry. And I know it's between Scotland and the rest of the UK, but really it's about Scotland and England. It's not about Wales yeah, and Northern yeah. Ireland when we're talking about yeah. Scottish independence. Is that it kind of inflames, obviously there's always been rivalry there, and that's healthy, and it, a lot of it's just banter largely around football a lot of the time. Yeah. 
But I would never... I hate the idea that we're sort of inflaming um, something that's beyond what would be a healthy rivalry and stoking the resentment on both sides. Because it does exist on both sides. You know, there are... You do encounter bizarre anti-Scottish thing amongst English people. I think if you think of the jingoism of the English, it's largely... Germans and Archies or whatever, you know, if you're going into that sort of the world, uh, those sort of recesses of uh, of English nationalism. But I do worry about the relationship between the two countries. I do worry that... I don't want the respect to be lost between the two. No, I agree with that. And, you know, again, you were saying earlier on about the best of both worlds with with a competent SNP government. But that, to me, is is why that's not a good situation to be in. Because, again, you know, the SNP, you know, and I'm not saying anything particularly controversial here, they, they, they live for independence. Nicola Sturgeon, John Swinney, Salmon maybe becoming a more marginal character. Mm. But these people, you know, their lives are defined by whether or not Scotland could be independent. And they know that if they can create not just grievance amongst the people in Scotland, but also resentment of Scotland amongst the people of England, because you're right, it's really an English-Scottish thing, they know that, you know, they are actively trying to piss off the English. Right. They want the English to be going, hold on, this Barnet yeah. formula is unfair. Because, by the way, it is unfair. Right. And it's particularly unfair to Wales and Northern Ireland, well, Northern Ireland less so, but yeah. Wales, really unfair too. And so they want that stuff to be flamed. You know, they are stoking those flames. And of course, there's a, you know, it's actually surprisingly not that strong, the kind of English nationalism movement. And as you say, there's a bit of English resentment to Scotland, but actually, despite the SNP's best efforts, I don't think there's really that much. Um, it is more banter it's and Euro- yeah, And it's more aimed at Europe and Germans and, yeah, you know, well, exactly. I mean, it's basically racist towards yes. non-whites. Yes, yeah, uh, exactly. And, the, no, and we shouldn't draw parallels between the English national movement and the SNP, because there are no, distinct, serious differences. Absolutely. Huge philosophical differences yeah. in their stances. But I, I, I kind of share your concern about and again you know to bring it back to these islands that's part of what these islands is about so you know whilst there's an element of continuing to try and make sure we have good facts and sound understanding of stuff and if they produce a economic document that's bullshit then we kind of carefully and with peer review and with senior economists and professors of economy and former deputy governors of the bank of england and all of that reviewing it and going no calmly carefully uh you know in a civilized way here's why that's not true we could do all that but the emotional side is harder uh, and will take longer. But that's our big challenge. So it's easy. To, it's easy to sort out the facts. But how do we address that issue? And I, you know, I don't. It's not. You know, if it was easy, it would have already been done, yeah. right? But how do we address that issue? Of are we just creating a sense of division amongst the people of these islands that is just ultimately destructive and depressing? I mean, how do you, part of the problem as well is that. Um, to be seen as a union, you know, to be seen as a, a nationalist is a, is a pejorative term. Yeah. I always find it odd when nationalists are sensitive about being called nationalists yeah. because, by definition, that's what it is. But equally... But equally, you'd be sensitive about being called, called a unionist. unionist. I'd say, well, um, I'm not exactly. And yeah. I would, although I am a unionist, yeah. I'm not a unionist in the kind of Queen and country yeah. Tory sense. Yeah, you're not going to wrap yourself in a union jack and, you know... Nah, rarely. Yeah. Oh, well, the St George's <laughs> Cross in England, you know, gets yeah, the World that's that's fine, that's and that's OK, but... Um, yeah, I don't identify with... Footy flags are different. Yes, yeah. I don't identify with monarchy and things like that. No. And I just think there has to be a progressive view of what the union is if it's to survive. Agreed. And actually, one thing that really depressed me about the independence debate is I think most English people love Scotland. Yeah. And I actually think most Scottish people like England. I don't, I don't detect... A, 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 you know, there is... It will exist in some quarters and occasionally we encounter it if you're on social media, but... Yeah. 
One thing that I would never want people in Scotland to think is that English people don't like Scotland. I think it, most people think it's one of the most amazing places on earth because it is. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, the Edinburgh Festival, obviously, is something you know very well. But, oh, you know, man. This, you know, in, in, there are so many wonderful kind of connections between uh, yeah. our countries, if you, if you want to kind of uh, voice it like that. Um, and that's partly... Part of the challenge of these islands is to try and surface that in the debate, and it's very difficult because that's none of that's news, right? You yes. know, none of that stuff you, you can't, you know, point a finger at someone and say, "Ha, you got that wrong," and that gets news because you know people can. It's quite hard to make that you know emotional case, um, but it needs to be done. I think somebody needs to be doing it, and in a way, again, the nationalists very long, slow, emotional case that they try and build around yeah. Scottishness. And it's compelling. And, and of course, it, you know, it, it appeals. It appeals to me. Yeah, you know, I can, me, you yeah. know, and the, the, a lot of the Scottish identity, I mean, I, I'm unusually for someone in, in, on my side of this debate, you know, I like Gaelic. I think Gaelic's a wonderful language. <laughs> and it's interesting and it's fascinating. And I, um, I have bigger issues with those who kind of try and make the Scots dialect a language to try and create a difference around that. But that's a different a different question. Um, but, yeah, you know, making that emotional case, uh, somebody's got to be doing it because it's, it's, it's beyond party politics. That's part of the problem here as well is, is, is in Scotland, the, um, the kind of constitutional and the party are aligned. Yeah. Right? You know, there is one party that stands for Scottish separation. And in the UK, of course, or in England, again, yeah. simplicity, rest of UK, England, it is dispersed. And therefore, you're not going to get a common view. And, it, you know, one of the things the SNP is brilliant at is, is choosing language and using it relentlessly. So, you know, whether it's dragged out of the EU against our will, you know, those every, you know, every one of those words has been focus grouped and tested to, the, to within an inch of its life. And they will use those same terms. There are plenty of other examples. And that helps. All of that helps build that case. Whereas if you've got Labour, Lib Dems, Tories, each coming up with their own kind of narrative for the United Kingdom, if they're not completely yeah. distracted by Brexit, they're different. And therefore, you just don't have that consistency of message yeah. that does over time make a difference. And it does, you know, it's these things, th these are nuances. Um, these are ways of using language uh, that take time to sink in, to settle into the public consciousness. And somebody needs to be thinking about that. And I don't think anybody is. Or if anybody is, it's us. In terms of the, the political parties in Scotland, then, um, uh, aside from the SNP, are they receptive to the work you're doing, you know, the Scottish Conservatives, Scottish Lib Dems, Scottish Labour? Yes. Um, I mean, we, there's no secret of this, you know, of course, do, doing what we do, uh, we talk with all political parties, including, by the way, you know, I will sit down and have, you know, lunch and drinks with SNP, MPs and MSPs, despite what some people might think. Um, and yes, we talk with all of the parties, um, both in Scotland and in the rest of the UK. And we have different levels of engagement um, and, you know, different personal relationships that work, some work better than others. But absolutely, you know, we believe that for these islands to have an impact, it needs to be helping steer the political debate. And so we talk with everybody. So when you're talking to SNP members of parliament and members of the Scottish parliament, yeah. How receptive are they to what you're saying? Well, so this I've got to share this anecdote actually, and there are enough female SNP MPs that that I can I can kind of anonymize it. I met with a female SNP MP down down here, um, Port Cullis House, yeah. um, 
And it was just after the Brexit vote had happened, yeah. right? And you know, everyone was resigning, and Cameron resigning, and Gove was knifing <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Boris and all of that. And I met her with two of her special advisors because they always, not always, but um, they often come with special advisors because the numbers are going to come up, they get kind of scared. Um, and so we were just having a kind of, we pre-chat over a cup of coffee. And of course, we were talking, God, the madness of Brexit, what's going on in this vote and the bloody Tories tearing this country apart you know and she's like yeah she's like I just can't believe it she says all of this damage all of this harm just because they blame everything on Brussels <laughs> and I looked at her across the table and I'm like is she having a joke I'm like you can you, yeah. can, you can see the irony here right yeah. that you're here as someone who blames everything on Westminster and she said well yeah but we have reason to do that our grievance is genuine and so I said okay I'm going to run with this you know yeah, yeah. so I was like so, so talk with what is the grievance says, well, we send more money than we get back. And I'm like, okay, right. And kind of carefully, slowly, slowly went through that. I had the chairs report with me. And here's the numbers. Here's the, so this, here's what that means. Here's what that means. And she kind of looked slightly quizzical. And she turned to her special advisors and said, is that? And they just kind of shrugged and went, yeah. Now, the point being, she genuinely believed what she was saying. Wow. She'd never looked at it. She's not analytical. Most MPs aren't, actually. Yeah, that's yeah, part yeah, of the that's problem. Frustrating. So, you know, and nobody lies better than someone who believes the lie they're telling, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, she genuinely believed this. So, I mean, I do, I'm not, I know I'm not going to change a SNP MP's view, yeah. um, but I do think even those who are, you know, clearly are always going to be nationalists, I think there is value in helping them, you know, understand stuff. I genuinely think she didn't understand something that after sitting and meeting with me, she understands. So it's not going to change her view, but it might at least make it harder for her to spin that lie next time she's talking to someone in the street. Um, so, I so, mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a, a unique experience. In general, <laughs> when you talk to uh, uh, members of the SNP and, uh, and members yeah. of Parliament, are, they, are there parts of your research that, that are of value to them? Because actually, we disagree on independence, but this is important stuff that... Um, I, hand on heart, I can't say that's happened with the SNP. No. Um, with the other parties, absolutely. You know, one of the issues at the moment, I mean, when we wrote this response to the Growth Commission, for example, I'm not you know, betraying any confidence when I say, you know, we obviously spoke with the Westminster parties and said, you know, what's happening in terms of responding to the Growth Commission? Yeah. And the answer was nothing. Of course not. We're too, you know, we don't have time to be responding to that. We, it's better to ignore it anyway, and we're all too distracted by Brexit. So we said, OK, well, we're going to write this paper. Actually, that would be really useful. Yeah. Um, and the reason why I have hard copies of it is because <laughs> quite a few of them said, can I get, get a copy? There's a copy in the House of Commons Library. Um, That's cool. You know, which is quite nice. I quite yeah, like yeah. that. Um, so, yes, you know, they do see the value of what we're doing. And again, you know, of course, you know, the better together thing, the damage that caused to Scottish Labour, of course, because they were working with the Tories yeah. and that can't be seen to be done. So, you know, we are not, there are no politicians involved on the in these islands. We won't have anyone who carries a party whip on the advisory council because we have to be above politics yes. or above party politics, I should say. Um, but equally, we will not have an impact on the debate if we're not speaking with the parties who are actually you know, likely to be elected. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the things I often say to people, uh, you know, we had it sort of post-India ref of you know what's going to happen what do we and i my sort of standard answer is well you just need to decide who you're going to vote for and that's, you know, <laughs> really actually, is that straightforward that's it it's all very well you know campaigning for the union and all of that but you know ultimately you you need to find someone to vote for who's going to beat the smp that's right if that's what if that's your prime you know motivating i mean in that regard course. even though the smp had their popularity checked in the in the general election they are still in a, yeah. what looks like an unassailable position and it's testament to them in so many ways that after 10 years in government in Scotland, they are still, and with, with all the successes yeah. and failures that that entails, 
still by far and away the only game in town. Yes. And in terms of, is that then, do you think, I mean, the, the rise of the Scottish Tories, the well, relative I was rise. Say, exactly. I mean, is that to do with unionist, in inverted commas, voters saying, well, if we want to stop. Scottish independence, for the first time we're going to have to yeah. vote Conservative. I think it's part of it. I mean, I, I did say during the independence referendum, I was quite vocal about this, that I thought that the long-term winners from the independence referendum would be the Scottish Conservatives. Um, because for many people, you know, myself included, uh, you know, it kind of detoxified the Tories. Yes. Right? You know, I was someone for whom, and I found myself on the same side of arguments as Tories, you know, which for me was quite difficult. Yeah. Right? Um, and I got to know some of them, and they turned out to be all right people. Some of them you know, actual human beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, really care but, about. You know, them. I mean, joking aside, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but actually, there was a degree of that. Yeah. Do you know that you you suddenly go, okay, we might disagree about the way to get there, but there's a few people who actually want bad stuff to happen. Yeah. Right. But that includes know? the SNP. And that, that does include the SNP. But what the SNP? So, but there is one big defining thing, which is they do want to break up the UK. Yeah. And it is possible to disagree with that one defining objective and I realise I do particularly when I see them lying to try and get there um, but the the, 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 the the rise of the Scottish Tories absolutely I think is there's never any, any one thing right you know it's a complex multivariant system that we're yes. dealing with here but a key element of that absolutely I think is you know Ruth Davison is a you know very capable politician. She speaks brilliantly. She spoke brilliantly for the union, and I think that won a lot of people around. She's also you know she's 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 their Blair, right? You know she's yeah. the Tory that Labour voters can can vote for because if you understand her background and if you know her and the way she speaks and you know she is authentic. She is you know she is who she who she who she looks to be, um, and that's not very you know that's not high church Tory, right? Yes, <laughs> you know? absolutely. It's um, very different. So 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 that's definitely. I have to say also, I mean. In, the state of the Labour Party at the moment, you and I could probably have a, a lengthy debate about that right. you know, in its own right. But that has also created a space for yes. the Tories because, you know, who's Richard Leonard again? You know, what's, <laughs> yeah. what, what does he stand for? What does he say? Uh, you know, I, for, for someone who's, you know, I, I, again, no secret of the fact I'm a traditional Labour voter. And yet, you know, whether a general election tomorrow, I have no idea who I would vote mm. for. Um, so there has been a kind of vacuum. By rights, you know, if you had... Ah, you know, I'm an unashamed Blairite, right? You know, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. If you, if Not you on had, this show. If, well, you know, if you had someone with that level of charisma yeah. and drive right now, um, and, in, and who and was a unifier, and yeah. exactly a unifier, someone who didn't, you know, in the kind of Corbyn Labour sense, you know, other everybody, you know, <laughs> if you're not part of the project, you're against us, and you should be deselected, and all of that. If you had a unifying, you know, middle ground force at the moment, with the mess of the Tories and Brexit, and frankly, with the mess of the SNP, because you know, you. The, 10 years in power, these things, you know, these things come to pass that people don't stay in power forever because ultimately you've got to own your shit, right? (laughs) And so the stuff that's happening in Scotland, they have to own. Now, they kind of get away with it by being the opposition when Mm. it suits them because they're the opposition to Westminster and they're in power when it suits them if something goes right. And I do think people are starting to see through that. But you're right, you know, the opinion polls, who's the most popular party in Scotland? The SNP by a long way. I mean, I would never want to be unfair. You know, I think you always have to be careful when you have strong feelings about these things. And Brexit is another one. You would never want to be unfair to the parties involved, to the intentions of the people involved, to the people who vote for it. Mm-hmm. So I have to constantly check myself. And include that includes Corbyn's yeah. Labour as well. Yeah. Because everyone just wants a better world. And when I talk to SNP politicians, the ones that I know well, Pete Wishart, when I interviewed John Swinney, when I talked to Stuart McDonnell, when I talked to Angus Robertson, the world they want to live in is the sort of world I want to live in. Mm-hmm. It is free of nuclear weapons. It is socially democratic. 
it is green. You know, there are all these very... And I totally disagree with them on independence, but then I think we end up in these um, debates where we are completely... You know, we, we, we perceive ourselves to be comp- the polar opposites of each other. Yeah. We get angry. Uh, and lies are told on both sides. And I think, actually, I sit down with members of the SNP. Very reasonable people who want a broadly similar world to me. Yeah. They just... Don't, and, and I also don't get the sense, and I'm sure with all these things, and it's the same when Nigel Farage talks about, you know, he, yeah, I like Europe, but just don't like the European Union, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, Well-travelled, he likes French wine yeah. and all that sort of thing. I yeah, don't... Passports. Yeah, I don't get the sense with, um, with John Swinney that he, he hates the English at all. No. And I wouldn't ever level no. that at him. I, I, I think. No, I, agree, a... I, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, I. He wanted England to win in the World Cup. Yeah. So, so I don't know how far we what go a with this. I mean, there is only, I think, one SNP politician who I think I actively disliked, and that was Alex Salmond. Right? Yeah, and, and there are um, increasing justifications. Yes, and you know, and you know, I mean that. I know, I'm sure you know, right? You know, this whole, well, this all came from the blue. Nobody knew about it. You know, the chattering classes, we all knew about it, right? Well, none of this stuff, none of this stuff came as a surprise. Well, the reputation um, yes. was, you know, you know which was, then does beg the question, whatever, I don't want to get ourselves into yeah. legal trouble, but whatever happens with the, with the case against Alex Salmond, um, who know what and when and what exactly. they did about it will exactly. become a more pertinent question. Exactly. But anyway, that, in a way, if, that's if, a different. If, and if, you're yeah, right; it's you know. probably a, it's probably a path that's not productive for us to no. go down. But the point being, I like, I like, you know, it's the exception that proves the rule, right? So yes, you know, when I was in a room with Alex Salmond, I found myself, you know, physically reacting. You know, I, I found I in just a, in a negative way. Negative way. <laughs> I just really yes. Sorry. <laughs> no. Uh, yes, I. You know. I disliked him. I yeah. disliked his attitude. I disliked, you know, and I didn't think he was a good person who just was mis- mis- misguided. Swinney, Sturgeon, uh, Angus Robertson, etc. Yeah. people. Yeah, I think, you know, exactly. I think they have, you know, good values. Yeah. You know, I don't think, you know, because I have left-wing values and broadly speaking, they have liberal values, they have yeah. left-wing values. They just unfortunately are fixated on something that I think is very damaging to all of the United Kingdom and particularly would be damaging to the people in Scotland who they claim to care most about because they're blinded by something. People would say, well, I'm blinded in the same way. I don't think I am, but then nobody does. But that's why, again, I tend to say, well, the one thing that there are objective facts here, you know, um, and we should be able to at least make sure that we're clear about the facts. And that's where I find myself diverged. So, sorry, because you're right, you know, the politicisation of, of Whitehall, the you know projections that happened with Brexit as well, yeah. and the kind of exaggerated forecasts and all of that stuff, both ways round. When you're in forecast territory, both sides are as bad as each other. Yes, you know, simply, I think that's probably true. But when you're where we start from, then actually there are objective facts, and you yeah. should be able to say we might disagree about a GDP forecast for the next five years, and neither of us can be said to be right or wrong. But we can be absolutely clear that there isn't a chunk of revenue missing from the JS figures for Scotland. You know, we can be absolutely clear about the fact that we do spend £1,700 per capita more on public services in Scotland than the rest of the UK. That is an undeniable fact, and yet it will get denied or certainly get obfuscated. And that's where I find myself disagreeing with those people who otherwise I think are reasonable people, because they're willing to, they're willing to lie about now to try and get to the future. Does that make them different to other politicians? I mean, it's hard because, of course, you know, again, you know, there is no, uh, what was it? 
we worked it out earlier on. There is no point of view. There is no. Oh, oh, not this again. <laughs> but yes, we'll just put, cut it out. We'll cut it out. Put it in. But of course, I see it from a particular perspective, yeah. uh, and so I am more focused on what they're saying than what other people are saying. I do, and I certainly have done in the past. I will pick up if I see someone on the pro uh, union side or the anti-independence side getting something wrong. I'll pick them up on it. Will I pick them up on it as aggressively and shout about it as much as I do on the other side? No, probably not. Um, but I, it's a good question, and I don't know if I can objectively answer it, but I do genuinely believe, whether or not I'm deluding myself, I do believe that they play faster and loose with the facts than the other side. So, for example, during the independence referendum, when, and actually all the numbers have been adjusted down since, which people tend not to notice, um, in terms of the, the Scottish JAIRS numbers, the oil revenue numbers, they accepted they'd actually exaggerated them in the... Uh, the JAIRS figures in 2012-13-14. But at that point of time, when it showed Scotland was, for a couple of years, a very small net contributor to the UK because of the oil income, not just me, I didn't see the pro-union case saying, yeah, but those numbers are all bollocks anyway and they're all made up and you're exaggerating the revenue numbers and you can't believe the numbers because they're all manipulated by Scottish government uh, uh, economists in St Andrew's House who are just trying to make the numbers look good. I didn't hear that. When the numbers go the other way... I hear that a lot. And I do think that's a good, you know, that is a good test. That's a kind of like-for-like test. Mm. You know, when the JAIRS numbers looked okay for Scotland, they weren't rubbished by those who were arguing against independence. When the JAIRS numbers look bad for Scotland, they are rubbished by a significant portion of those arguing for it. So I think that, I think, I think I can say, objectively, (laughs) they're worse. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose it depends what issue you pick, doesn't it? I mean, there was definitely, um, you know, when you think of better together... Although it what you know it won, and actually one of the things that really frustrates me is this idea that the Scottish public are not. It's quite a, I think a negative view of, of the Scottish electorate, peddled by some nationalists, which is this idea that because Labour and the Tories campaigned together on the union, that means Labour are Tories. I think the vast majority of people in Scotland and elsewhere are sophisticated enough to realise yeah. they agree on that one issue. That doesn't mean that they're the same naturally. Exactly. The, they, they were sort of pre-Corbynite, this red Tory stuff. Yeah, and I, I think, I think a lot of people, and, and I sort of understand the SNP side of this, which is, and it's the same as the Corbyn side. They felt that they were laughed at for a long time, that they were disparaged, that the Labour Party was deeply disrespectful to them, and this is kind of their revenge. Mm. And that's what it feels like in some quarters: is we're going to really rub your noses in it. And but what they've done is denigrate. Uh, a lot of good Labour people yeah. who aren't Conservatives at all, no, exactly. and, but they've contributed to this environment where, I don't know, I just... I, I, no, I know what you mean. I mean, there's an element of reap what you sow there as yeah. well, you I know, think, particularly with Scottish Labour demonising the Tories so much over the years. Yeah. You know, so, you know, certainly, maybe less so now, certainly the last couple of general elections, you know, you stick a yellow rosette on someone, they're going to get elected in, in Scotland. That's partly why the average quality of SNP MPs is, is so low, because yeah. they suddenly had to find loads of, S- of MPs from nowhere. Right? There are some brilliant... Um, I mean, and, uh, there are very good SNP yeah. MPs, um, but there are also a lot... I mean, my view of my view of politicians through this process has, has completely bifurcated between I've got way more respect for some politicians yes. than I ever had before, because, do you know, what? if you choose to do that, and you have the talent and ability to choose to do other things, you're doing it for the right reasons because yeah. otherwise why the hell would you do it uh you know it's a shit job right <laughs> yeah, it's awful um, but equally it's like watching sausages being made you know there are people who i met and debated with during the independence referendum who are now mps and i'm like these guys i mean these are people with you know 
these are people for whom being an MP is an absolute achievement in their lifetime because there's nothing else. You know, they would never have been able to earn that much money doing something else. So there's a bit of that. You know, it's but, like the '97 intake, isn't it? It's the problem that that Labour had in '97 yeah. was that they were so popular that a lot of crap got elected exactly. Exactly. and 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 was carried on a high tide for three elections. Um, Equally, a lot of great MPs. I mean, the SNP, there, there are... Uh, Alison Thewlis is very impressive. Yeah. Stuart MacDonald. Angus Robertson, when he was leader of the SNP group, was like the real leader of the opposition at Prime Minister's Questions. Yeah, agreed. A real high-quality app. Very a well. brilliant parliamentarian. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there are other examples that you, you could... Some very, very yeah. high-skilled um, uh, MPs but, 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 alongside, but to, obviously, those that got elected. Yeah, just, but to, to your point, you know... The, Labour, uh, to some extent, reap what they sow on that because when you could stick a red rosette on anyone, they got you know yeah. elected, and they demonised the Tories and they demonised it to such a degree that in a way, then when they were seen on a platform with a Tory, yes. argue, well, actually, hold on, you said these guys were you know the, the absolute evil. incarnation of the devil, yeah. right? So in a way, well, you reap what you sow, yeah. you know. Um, but so it, then but I it, suppose it's hugely depressing because of you know of course you and they say personally. Tories, who I would never have thought I had much in common with, you go, actually, I've got way more in common with than I realised. And that's probably not a bad thing to realise. No, but this is, I suppose it's a demonstration of how volatile politics is, is that I always think volatility is for other people, but then I'm like, well, I can't vote Labour anymore, or whatever my current view is. Um, And it does, strange alliances form around new issues, and I just wonder... um, In terms of looking forward, then, because we've kept you for far more than than I said I would... In terms of the future, do you think we will have another referendum on Scottish independence? If so, when? And what would the outcome be? Oh, well, that's very very straightforward. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it is probably inevitable that at some point there'll be another referendum because yeah. the SNP aren't going to go away and that nationalist movement isn't, isn't going to fade away. Um, when is a really good question. Um, yeah, there, there's a reason why Sturgeon hasn't already called it, right? You know, she they, they have the mandate because she'd lose it, yeah. and she would lose it. And, she, and particularly, you know, all the research says, particularly in the context of Brexit, you know, the now is not the time. The May line when yeah. you know, that that resonates, right? Just not now, Nicola. Gee, oh Christ, just yeah. please, please not <laughs> yeah. now. So there's an element to which they've they've got to wait until that weariness of referendums has gone away. Yeah. Um, They've got to wait till post-Brexit, therefore, yeah. because you've got to be clear what Brexit is. Therefore, they've got to get another mandate because it's going to be past another Hollywood election in terms of the timing of just the, the, the process of being able to organise a referendum. Will they get another mandate? You know, so then there's this process of trying to create a grievance that we've... So you know, probably what will happen is they will time it such that they will ask for a referendum safe in the knowledge that May will say, not now just before a Holyrood election, which they then get to say, see, we've been denied our democratic right to have a referendum and renew their mandate. Yes. Um, Ultimately, I think as long as the UK continues to pool and share resources as it does, um, and the Barnet formula should probably be changed because it is overly generous to Scotland, and that's a problem, and lots of people don't like me saying that, but it's true. But as long as that happens, um, and unless there is, you know, by the way, oil gets to $100 a barrel, Big deal. Last time oil was $100 a barrel, we generated less than $2 billion of tax income. It's not, you know, we're not going to see those 8 and $10 billions again. But mm-hmm. if I'm wrong and there is another surge and suddenly there's another newfound wealth of income that Scotland can claim as its own, then there becomes an economic case. I do believe that there has to be an economic case and there isn't one. And so as long as there isn't one, then I think the result will be the same as it was last time. Just in terms of 
um, oil. Fracking is obviously something the SNP yeah. are against. I mean, that is potentially a gold mine. I, mean, yeah. I understand all the environmental and ecological arguments against it and the political ones, mm. but it does seem odd that Scotland is potentially rich in another natural resource yeah. that could absolutely exploit uh, economically and therefore politically. Do you think, is there a world in which the SNP could say, well, actually, fracking is the economic case? Possibly. I mean, there are arguments that there are um, frackable reserves in England. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting kind of thought experiments is if it turned out that there were massive frackable energy reserves in England, yeah. would would the SNP be saying that's their oil? Uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that idea that, you know, once you, you discover an asset, then you say, well, that's ours now. We're in this kind of pooling and sharing. We've all agreed to kind of share stuff equally. Oh, well, hold on. We'll hold on to this. Bit. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, the, the, the honest answer is I don't know in terms of, you know, the economic of fracking and the extent to which that could be another boon. But conceptually, if there were some other boon that changed the economic case, then I think we might end up with a different answer. And partly that depends on the likes of, you know, us with these islands. If we've succeeded in changing hearts and minds, in getting people to think a bit more about what the value of union is, both in Scotland and in the rest of the UK, and particularly in England. You know, if people, if people want it to stay together, it'll stay together. Um, and on, at the moment... Despite everything, I mean, you know, this is important. You know, despite everything, despite Brexit, despite dragged out against our will, yeah. despite all of this disruption, despite Tory governments, despite, in my view, a Labour Party in disarray, still the majority of people in Scotland want to stay in the United Kingdom, and that, you know, that gives me heart. There is, uh, if you if you're on that side of the debate, absolutely, it's, it seems uh, quite remarkable. <laughs> Um, uh, uh, it, was, it does seem quite a remarkable point of view to, to have held. I suppose when you look at where the yes vote came from, though, that that's something that, you know, to be fair to the yes vote, sort of holding it around where it was mm. after the referendum, it had started pre that referendum at a far lower base, sort of 20%. Yeah. In another campaign, you know, it put on 25% during the last campaign, all they've got to do is get 5.5% in the next campaign. Sure. One more heave. It's not beyond the realms. It's, it's, no, it's certainly not beyond the realms of possibility. And, you know, anyone who tries to predict outcomes of elections, you know, just has to look at the last 10 years and, yeah, you know, good luck. Never predict, um, never but, I mean, I, I think... Yes, I was about to turn into a strategy consultant here. You know, they've plucked the... Please low, do. They've plucked the low-hanging fruit. You yeah. know, they've, 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 <laughs> they've, 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 they've chosen a direction to go, and that direction has got them so far. I mean, I think, by the way, there's an equivalent argument with the Scottish Tories, um, that it was right for them to go the unionist vote, the unionist vote. But that also caps, right? Um, yes. and I, but, but I think what the SNP have done is they've done a great job of driving grievance and, you know, winning people around to their cause, based on a false economic prospectus. Um, and I think that's been exposed. I think, you know, one of their tactical decisions, you know, mistakes was to say, to take, I think, such a strong view on the EU. Because, as we know, more people have actually switched away from yes to no who are against the EU. Because, actually, emotionally, that, that argument doesn't make sense, right? The power grab. Yeah. God help us. The power grab, right? Powers that were held at Brussels to maintain the integrity of the European single market. Those powers coming back to the UK, if they don't go to Scotland, that's a power grab. Well, hold on. Hold on. So we, what's, what, what Scotland would like is to give those powers back to Brussels. Uh, these are powers that were, in, by definition, Scotland didn't have, but will create a grievance around a power grab. Now, I think, you know, guys sitting in the pub can understand that that's actually a bollocks argument. 
Yes. You know, I do think so. So I think they've kind of, I think they've, you know, they've stretched themselves to the limits on this stuff. And actually what the EU thing has forced them is to take another position. And you take another position, you divide the electorate into four, right? You know, yeah. it, was, it was divided into two, and now it's kind of split into four. You've got independence, not independence, EU, not EU. And they've put themselves in a quadrant. They are pro-EU, pro-independence. And that's limiting. And, and I think also, that continues to be limiting. There is a, there is a, it sort of breaks the logic of true independence. So if you yeah. really, really, really totally believe in absolute independence, yeah. you wouldn't want to be a member of the exactly. EU. Which is what plenty... You know, which Jim Zillers. Yeah, exactly. There are, you know, and there are plenty of SNP supporters who have that view, which is why I think they've kind of got themselves in a bit of a bind here. But every party's in a bind of, of oh, Brexit. Course, isn't it? Course, you know, yeah, exactly. The one thing we know is that there's, there's nothing that the majority support at the moment. Everyone is trying to keep together bizarre coalitions of Leave and Remain voters yeah. to greater or lesser extents. In terms of what happens next for these islands mm. then, how does it work? Can people commission you to do work? Do you put on events and things? So, I mean, yes. I mean, So the, the first level is to get in touch. We're easy to get in touch with. We've got a website. We've got contact forms. We're on Twitter, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so the first thing is get in touch come and talk to us um we are doing events we've done a couple of kind of academic events which is one in cambridge one up in st andrews getting academics because part of part of what we're trying to do is build a solid intellectual case um and that's not the case that's going to be the soundbite on facebook but actually before you get to that before you get to the shareable meme you need to actually i I believe in robust intellectual thinking underpinning anything so we're trying to build that sort of thinking with kind of academic events but also um and i love anyone to get in touch if they're interested in this by the way uh, we're starting to do events around universities of going to working with you know student union bodies uh, so we've got one uh, which we're just scheduling at the moment in St Andrews and one in Dundee and we're looking at others where we'll just go and talk to people let's get a bunch of you know politically active students in a room I don't mind what your politics are and let's just chat about some of this stuff and yes partly that is about you know a bit of frameworking and a bit of data and then let's try and talk this stuff through because you know anecdotally for me the 18 to 24 demographic mm. uh, in scotland you talk to those people and there's a real risk here of sounding like some kind of fuddy-duddy you know, it's only youth today they just don't understand what they're talking about but i'm 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 often shocked by the extent to which really basic stuff they just don't understand not you know not stuff where i've got an opinion and there's a different that they don't realize that the scottish nhs is fully devolved for example yes. i mean anybody who doesn't realize that now um but there are still people out there that basic level so whilst we're trying to do the if you like the ivory tower thinking which i'm you know slightly wary of but i do think it needs to be done it is also just about getting out there and talking it's about as i say we've commissioned a couple of pieces from uh, some prominent nationalists to say right what you think Think would need to change about the UK for you to change your view about Scottish nationalism. Yeah, let's start to push those debates. So yeah, you know, people get in touch, contribute, um, be part of the conversation. We will put your contact details and, and the website in the notes as people can look at. I don't know what you call them. What do you call them? people yeah. looking on their iPhones and whatever else? Yeah. It'd be in the blurb. The blurb. The blurb. <laughs> the blurb. That's exactly what it whatever is. Whatever it is. I mean, it, it does strike me to, uh, talking to you, Kevin. Have you ever thought about standing for Parliament? <laughs> uh, yes, and very quickly thought that would be a terrible idea. Um, it, it, you know, it, it is a question that's come up in recent yeah. years because of me getting involved in this stuff, um, and that's partly why I said earlier on uh, there are MPs who I now admire far more than I used to because I've been through the thought process of going, would I want to do that? Um, and there are two reasons 
why I can't envisage me doing that. One is party politics. Mm. I can't see a party that is consistently right enough for me to want to be in that party. So maybe if that you know stuff changed and I saw a home that I went, actually, I can fully buy into this. There, is not, there isn't anything out there I can fully buy into at the moment. That's the kind of intellectually sort of rational view. Yeah. And then there's the purely selfish one, which is, you know, I've done all right for myself. I don't need to work. I can, you know, I'm enjoying my business life. Um, do I want to be having these kind of debates and arguments and stomach-knotting tension of being in a room where someone's saying something that you just want to be able to... I'm not sure that would be good for my health. Uh, you know. It's true. Politics yeah. destroys people. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I, and, I, and I'm not sure I'm willing to destroy myself for this. So that's why I do this, because it, for me it's quite a good compromise, the These Islands thing, because it's not party political, but it is political. It allows me to be involved in a debate, but it um, spares me from having to tow a party line or indeed, you know, turn up for work at Westminster on a regular basis and not see my wife and walk my dog as much as I'd like to. <laughs> Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much yeah, for coming thank in. Thank you. Really Cheers. enjoyed it. Thank you, Matt. Well, there you go, Kevin Haig. Um, I loved every minute of it. I love talking to people who've done thorough research because you just want to soak up everything, whether you agree with it or not, you just want to soak up all the information. Um, and it is, you know, obviously on this show, you get a mixture of people. And I, I love the academic ones or the people who've really done the research. Um, you feel like you're, you're being given a wonderful education by um, well-meaning interesting intellectual people and what a thrill that is um i should in in order to balance this out really i should get on someone i've obviously had smp guests in the past i need to probably relatively soon get on um a, a member from the from the from the pro independent side um to sort of get a checkup on, on on the latest there really just to balance it out um but obviously trying to balance out leave remain labor tory uh you know yes and no is uh, is is a is a permanent ongoing uh, pursuit of this podcast thank you for downloading it and if you can in return for hopefully the pleasure it has given you tweet about it share it leave a, an iTunes review and um just help get the word out there uh, thank you very much for downloading. The next, oh, we're back next week, Emily Thornbury live coming up soon. Very excited. And of course, don't forget, two dates at the South Bank where I'm doing uh, my brand new stand-up show, Brexit Through the Gift Shop, on the 1st and 5th of December. And the 19th and the 20th of December, two big Christmas parties at the Leicester Square Theatre for the political party Christmas special. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.